This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. third stroke, it will be a five, five, and fifty seconds. Do you really think 110 pounds is that much? Remember, always use the Green Cross code. Happy birthday! Ah, the sounds of yesteryear. Even the word yesteryear sounds antique, now that I think about it. They don't make words like yesteryear anymore. No, it's not like the old days. But they didn't make podcasts then either. We'll have internets to publish them on, so maybe I shouldn't be complaining. Because, well, here we are. I'm Raphael Baer. This is Politics on the Couch, the podcast that puts the milk of human psychology onto the crunchy cereal of politics. Do you remember when cereal came with toys at the bottom of the box? Or transfers? Transfers. It was like a cross between a sticker and a tattoo. A superhero or an action figure that you literally transferred onto a blank scene that was printed on the back of the box and you rubbed it with a coin. Never really worked all that well, to be honest. No? Have no idea what I'm talking about? Uh, Must have been a a late 70s, early 80s thing. Yeah, maybe look it up on YouTube. But you're going to have to get used to this kind of chat because this episode comes to you from memory lane. We're talking about nostalgia. Now, regular listeners to this podcast will know that I have a particular fascination with this topic. It's come up a lot in relation to Brexit. And normally the idea is that British politics has been shaped by some people's ambition, fixation even, on recovering a romanticised, glorious past, whether it's an idea of imperial greatness or, or just a simpler existence remembered from childhood, a time when life was easier before globalised modernity came along and ruined everything. The thing is, I realised that nostalgia is a political concept that I've been using a lot without really interrogating what exactly I mean by it. It bundles up notions of memory and loss and nationhood and regret. 
And I thought it was about time I got more of a handle on what nostalgia actually is, psychologically speaking. So I went to two experts who have made it their life's work to find out. They are Konstantin Selikides and Tim Viltrud. They are both professors of social and personality psychology at the University of Southampton. Now, Konstantin and Tim have been researching nostalgia for decades. They've been digging deep into the feelings that the word describes, why we feel them, and what those feelings are actually doing for us. These two professors have really transformed the scientific psychological understanding of nostalgia's function. How it's the anchor that can keep the boat of our personality stable in the stormy, choppy waters of modern life. And let's face it, the sea is pretty rough right now. And when I spoke to them, I realised I'd been getting a lot wrong. Or at least maybe I'd been a bit too down on nostalgia, seeing it as something regressive, backward-looking, closed off from reality. I mean, obviously, it has an eye in the rearview mirror, but as we all know, that's a pretty important part of safe driving. I'd underestimated the positive side of nostalgia. So this was a really instructive conversation for me, and I hope you enjoy it too. I started by asking Professor Viltrud what psychologists actually mean by nostalgia, and whether that's in any way different from what the rest of us mean when we bandy the word around. The way we talk about it in our research is very similar to the way lay people understand it. We asked lay persons to list characteristics of nostalgia. So we did this in many different countries and people come up with the same definition, lay persons, more or less of what nostalgia is. So a sentimental, affectionate longing for the past. A sentimental, affectionate longing for the past captures it pretty exactly. And, and in a clinical setting, how are you, as it were, measuring that on a scale? There's, there's not a kind of a Newton's or a Graham's unit that you can use of volumes of nostalgia. Um, but maybe Constantine, you can help me with this. What are you actually doing to find that some people are ex expressing or experiencing more of this than others? Let me go back to what Tim was saying and add that uh, what we also find is that nostalgia is an ambivalent or bittersweet emotion. So it involves pleasantness and joy and happiness, but also it involves some sadness and some tinges of longing or yearning for a past that is bygone forever. And this ambivalent is something special about nostalgia. It's a mostly positive emotion, but also with a degree of bittersweetness. But it hasn't always been positive, has it? I mean, one of the things I read one of your papers and it was very interesting to understand that historically, this the term enters the language as, as a pathology, as a disease. Is, that's right, isn't it? Yes. Uh, modern uh, scholarly history of nostalgia begins in the late uh, 17th century when a student at the University of Basel, Hofer, decided to do his dissertation on it. And he described it in the most abysmal terms pathology, brain disease, clinical disorder, you name it. And this negative reputation of nostalgia lasted for over 300 years. Only in the last couple of decades or so, people have come to realize that nostalgia is a mostly positive, functional, adaptive emotion. I can see how people would associate it with a kind of depressive state, though, just because you know, when I think of times when I'm feeling nostalgic, there is a wistfulness to it. As you say, it's a bittersweet thing. 
but it seems to be also an escape from the present. You're seeking uh, comfort from the past. So, so Tim, I know also you've you've found this as well that people seem to use nostalgia as a way of of sort of almost medicating themselves from a present trauma. Have I got that right? Yeah, that's one way in which we've approached it as a uh, homeostatic corrective. So something negative happens, it disturbs you, it disturbs the organism, and nostalgia counteracts the negative stimulus, the negative event. For example, you may feel lonely and it triggers nostalgia. And nostalgia then reminds you of loved ones, of positive relations you have had in the past, and you feel a little bit closer to those individuals. It's as if they're there with you in the here and now, and that then makes you feel more connected and less lonely, sort of balance being restored through nostalgia. And now that's an intensely personal thing, which then immediately makes me wonder how you both found yourselves working in this field. This is What was it that actually drew you to dedicate your professional lives to this particularly bittersweet, ambivalent emotion? Constantine. I can answer this question, Raphael, by going back to your own question, which is, you pointed out that when you are nostalgic, you feel a bit sad, depressed, you want to escape, blah, blah, blah. Uh, what Hofer found uh, 330 years ago is that young Swiss men, teenagers actually, who migrated to France for money, Switzerland was a poor country, and young men had to make money for their families. These young men felt uh, very nostalgic but also sad and sometimes he had depressive symptoms and so on and so forth. So he concluded that nostalgia causes depression, hence the negative reputation of the construct for over 300 years. He was wrong. Uh, he got the direction of causation wrong. What he should have concluded is that when people are sad, they resort to nostalgia to counter their sadness and, as Tim pointed out, to reestablish homeostasis, equilibrium psychological equilibrium. Was that your view when you first went into this research? I mean, this is why I'm intrigued to know uh, uh, how you entered this field, whether that was something you were expecting to find and whether it was because, bluntly speaking, you were kind of nostalgic individuals who thought, what is this thing I'm feeling all the time and I need to understand it better from a scientific point of view, or is that not how it works? To some extent, we are like Hofer's uh, participants, the Swiss soldiers, both Tim and I, are migrants. Uh, Tim is from the Netherlands. I am from Greece. We met in the US and then we came here to this country. And as a lot of research has indicated, uh, migrants, immigrants, uh, expatriates, however you want to call us, um, they tend to feel a bit nostalgic about their past, a bit more so than uh, locals. So both Tim and I have carried with us our own homeland, our own past, and when we would think about it, we would feel good, not bad. So we thought that there is something wrong here. Why is it? We're supposed to feel bad, according to Hofer, right? But we don't. We feel good. Nostalgia is like pick us up. is a resource. That's very interesting because I think one of you has written uh, that it's a, a bank of positive affect, uh, which is a brilliant way of saying, uh, is that you, Tim? Yes, that, that, that it's a brilliant way of saying you have this this sort of resource of good feeling from the past that you can apply as balm to the present. And 
I've got really two questions that come out of that. But, but the first one is, how are you knowing that, that that's what people are doing? By which I mean, from a research point of view, what, what are you asking them? What's the actual test you're applying that you can see how much credit they've got in their bank of positive affect and what the little kind of cognitive uh, ATM card that they're putting into the machine is to draw out some of that to make themselves better? How you, what, what are the metrics that get you to that readout, if you see what I mean? This is something that we both wrote in one of our earlier papers. What Constantine just mentioned about feeling good instead of bad when you're nostalgic reminded me uh, a little bit of the, the first studies we did. We've done probably hundreds now. But in the very first one, we just asked people very simply, what are the circumstances under which you become nostalgic? To our surprise, a lot of people said, I become nostalgic when I'm a bit sad, when I feel a bit lonely. Then we asked, okay, that, that's intriguing. You know, maybe we were expecting things like when I smell something that reminds me of the past or when I listen to songs that remind me of the past. And those things were there, obviously. But really, negative mood and, and loneliness were the things that stood out as triggers of nostalgia. So we asked, what does nostalgia then do for individuals when they're lonely? And one way in which we tested that in the early studies was to have randomly assigned participants to conditions in an experiment. So in one condition, they wrote about a nostalgic experience from their past. And in the other condition, we asked them to write about an ordinary event from their past. So in both conditions, they wrote about their past. In both conditions, they wrote about something that happened to them, an autobiographical event. But only in one condition was it a, a nostalgic event. And we then measured variables such as uh, how socially connected they felt, whether they think they can trust others. That's the social connectedness function of nostalgia. We ask them whether they think life is meaningful, whether life is worth living, the meaning function. Third important function we looked at was the self-regard. So I like myself, I'm a person of worth, those types of questions. And what we found and what we found since consistently in, in follow-up studies is that those people who wrote about a nostalgic event uh, reported more social connectedness, higher self-regard, more meaning in life. And since then, we've expanded the range of, of outcomes to include things like optimism and self-continuity, the extent to which you see a connection between your past and present selves. Now, that's extraordinarily interesting to me because it is one of those things that makes sense intuitively that if you're when you feel nostalgic about anything in the past, just to give a personal example, I recently transferred some old home movies that had been recorded on obsolete technology into MP4 files, which means I can see them on a laptop. Again, it absolutely confirms your research. I was sort of expecting to that it would, I would feel sad about this watching it because it would remind me how much I'd aged and it was a period from the time from the past that's essentially lost, you know, my children's early infancy. But actually, I, I definitely found a very strong sense of being grounded. And it, it was during lockdown. And it was an enormous tonic. It really, I noticed it as almost a kind of narcotic effect, actually, from watching these old films. And this really connects to what you're saying about nostalgia being a mechanism by which you situate a difficult present in a narrative process that gives meaning. Um, 
now I'm just sort of playing back to you what you've said to me, but is that a, a fair representation of, of, of what you found? Indeed, uh, it is. May I give you an example of a study we did where it describes very nicely what actually you discovered. So we induced nostalgia using the experimental paradigm that Tim described. Half of our participants think about a nostalgic event in their lives, mull it over, write about it. Another half of our participants think about an ordinary, regular, autobiographical event from their lives and write about it. Some studies would define nostalgia for them, sentimental longing or wistful affection for your past. In other studies, we don't. But it doesn't seem to make a difference whether we define nostalgia for them or not. They know what it is. So what we found is that those participants who were in the nostalgia condition, those who became nostalgic, compared to controls, felt more socially connected. And this social connection led to more self-continuity. They felt higher continuity with their past. Oh, now I know how I got here from there. And because they felt more self-continuity, they felt higher meaning in life. Oh, now my life makes more sense. So this was sort of the serial causation of that. First, nostalgic participants felt socially connected then continues with their past, and then that their life was meaningful. Now, I know that your speciality here is the individual experience of nostalgia, but as someone who's commented a lot on, on political movements and, and national cultures, I can't help but think something else is going on here, that the, there is a potential extrapolation available that when cultures and societies are experiencing some great upheaval or disturbance, this is something that they will do, particularly when you say they look craving or they get, they draw from this a kind of connectedness, an expression of cultural nostalgia, whether it's just watching Downton Abbey, although that's a bad example because that happened before most people's memories. But you know, The Crown, you know, the, the series that's on at the moment, this is going to be a balm to the soul of a nation that is experiencing some kind of disturbance. Is that a reasonable thing to be extrapolating here? I think so. Uh, so we've done a number of studies where we looked at collective forms of nostalgia. What we find very clearly is that remembering nostalgic events you shared with other individuals, um, it could be people you went to school with, went to uni with, or it could be other people um, who share your nationality. That has some distinct benefits for the group. You become more willing to sacrifice for the group. You evaluate the group more positively, and you're more likely to want to approach and not avoid members of your own group. So get to know them, spend time with them, and so on. It increases group cohesiveness, but as we know, group cohesiveness is a very double-edged sword. It can have very beneficial effects for people within the group, but it can also be manifested as a hostility towards people outside of the group. Constantine, you wanted to come in here. Indeed. Uh, let me first say that oftentimes reporters or colleagues tell us that, well, people these days are very nostalgic. What's going wrong? What's going on? And our argument is that, well, if you go back and read uh, newspapers, for example, or uh, some humanistic scholars were arguing in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and so on, they were saying the same thing. So nostalgia is a constant. 
It's a societal constant. And as you pointed out, it mimics the individual dynamic. So when society is more uncertain, people are prone to more nostalgia. But getting back to what Tim was saying, there is a difference between personal nostalgia and collective or national nostalgia in the sense that collective or national nostalgia can be used as a tool often by politicians to achieve their own gain, their own aim. And it's a tool, so it all depends on how one evaluates the aim, of course, but it can be used and it has been used as a tool by both sides, of course, liberal and conservative, but in more recent memory by the popular radical uh, right-wing parties. For example, the slogans, Make America Great Again, that's a clearly nostalgic slogan, and the slogan, Take Back Control, that's also a nostalgic slogan. They don't specify when exactly was America great, or how was it great, or when exactly this country had control, or what control means, but these slogans implicitly refer back to a glorified past that needs to be recreated and will make people people feel better and the future look brighter. I myself am very guilty of this from the, as it were, the opposite side of that argument as a liberal, remembering the period of the late 90s and the beginning of the 21st century when there was a sort of a cultural, for want of a better word, centrist hegemony uh, and seeing that as a golden age uh, and probably uh, applying an unrealistic level of nostalgia to that in much the way that many people who voted for Donald Trump probably have an unrealistic uh, memory, as it were, of what the US looked like in the 1950s or early 1960s when they are positing some, some greater America uh, that they miss. But I suppose what I'm trying to ask here is whether there is an element of false memory involved in this or that you know on a political level or on an individual level nostalgia allows for the implanting of a mythic idea of the past that actually isn't that accurate relative to what our personal experiences were yes indeed it's uh, what we also find is that nostalgic memories are a bit uh, idealistic it's not that at, at the personal level it's not that they're inaccurate nostalgic memories become less negative and more positive as time goes by. In terms of the collective level, this is where you're bound to have higher inaccuracy because these memories are fuzzier. Many of us were not around when the UK or England were great or had control, but we like the sound of it. I mean, nostalgia makes us feel more secure, safe, stable, and in the long run, optimistic. Now, sorry, I'm going to interrupt because I'm going to suggest something here and this is a wild hypothesis so feel free to completely shoot it down but is there a possibility that what's happening here is that we all have this individual mechanism which is looking back at the past finding continuity that grounds us and it has the therapeutic benefits that we discussed earlier we know that reaching back into the past that mechanism is available then there is a sort of a political or cultural movement elsewhere that is trying to achieve that on behalf of the nation even referring to things that happened long before we were born, so whether it might be, for example, the mid-1940s and the sort of Churchill moment of Britain standing alone against continental Europe, which a lot of people who voted to leave the European Union had no memory of experience of. And yet somehow, because we know it's reaching back into the past, it's activating a trigger in us that we've practiced in our own personal lives, and therefore that becomes very potent. Does that make any sense at all? Yes. That's a relief. <laughs> <It does>. <laughs> <laughs> Let's concretize it a bit. 
maybe I can answer it in two ways. Uh, let's go back to an experiment that some other colleagues conducted about 30 years ago. They asked participants at Michigan, it was a cloudy, overcast day. They asked them, how are you today? And they said, well, I don't feel that well. I'm sad, just, you know, a bit depressed. And then they asked some other participants, what's the weather like out there? And they said, oh, it's overcast and miserable. And how are you feeling today? And they said that they felt good. Why? Well, because they realized that the source of their unhappiness was the weather. So they attributed their unhappiness to the weather. And they corrected for that. They removed the weather as a cause of their unhappiness. The insidious effects of those slogans is similar. So when you say, take back control, you don't tell people, look, I'm going to make you nostalgic. And because you're going to make you nostalgic, then you're going to cling to a homogenous, um, idealized past that uh, implied moral a moral community. And because of that, you're going to dislike foreigners and minorities. They don't do that. But they instill nostalgia in an indirect, insidious way. And by feeling nostalgic, that makes you feel good. It elevates your level of efficacy and potency. And then you cling to your in-group and you dislike the out-group. Presumably, there is another side to this, which is people feeling threatened when someone questions the legitimacy of their nostalgic emotion. And I've, I'm sure I've been guilty of this, writing things saying the image you have of the past is a fiction. It was never like that. I mean, people like to idealize the 1950s in Britain and the 1950s in Britain, people were hitting their children and their wives and it was barely considered against the law. You know, there were all sorts of terrible things happened. There was a lot of poverty. It was not a good time for a lot of people. And so it's easy to uh, rebut the romanticism. But I suppose if you are in a nostalgic state of mind and someone comes along and says, no, that's a lie, that's a myth, you feel, I mean, going back to what you were saying, Tim, about the consolidation of your own group, you feel very threatened by that. That's going to elicit quite a hostile response, I would imagine. Yes, I think so. I think nostalgic memories are very central to the way we see ourselves. We think they capture or represent something core, something essential about who we are. And when someone questions that or disparages that, um, it's quite uh, threatening. We know from research, for example, that people will go through some length to protect and guard their nostalgic memories. So they may be reluctant to go back to places that are very, very nostalgic for them because they fear that the reality of it might not live up to their nostalgic memory. So people that take several steps to protect these memories, which suggests that they're really important and, and cherished. And of course, they fulfill a lot of essential psychological functions. If you turn it around, how do we see people who express nostalgia? Well, we see them as more human. We think they're agreeable and trustworthy and so on. So it suggests that these memories are really quite core to who we think we are. Tim, can I just clarify, when you say we see them that way, you've, you've measured that, right? We've quantified, we know that that is the response. We have done a number of studies. We haven't published them yet. This is very clear when people express nostalgia, the audience evaluates uh, these individuals very positively. To elaborate minorly in what uh, Tim was saying, so when you criticize Raphael people's beliefs that the 50s was a glorious time for the nation, what people feel is like they're being personally attacked. 
they have internalized the belief that the 50s was a good time for the country. And then you come across and you insult them. You dispute that and you insult them by telling them they are wrong. Uh, they don't like that. Thinking about, again about the sort of the therapeutic benefits of, of nostalgia and memory, that you can actually go back to a traumatic experience and almost actively edit it in a way to make it happier and better. It's very interesting that in this country, a lot of people have a, a fond notion of the Blitz, for example, uh, the spirit of the Blitz, which was a time of enormous trauma. The bombs were raining down from the sky and it wasn't clear that the UK was going to win the war. Uh, and yet I wonder what the connection there is between uh, uh, trauma and fondness. That seems to me paradoxical. In some extent, the brain takes care of that by making these memories more positive with the passage of time. That's how the brain works. So negative affect fades away. Positive affect is strengthened as time goes by. But I would sort of challenge the notion that we need to edit the memories. For example, we have done a lot of research trying to understand better the therapeutic benefits of nostalgia. Take the case of bereavement. People in bereavement who are nostalgic, uh, experience less stress in the long run. That's because when they become nostalgic about their partner and the lives they had with this partner, they understand better the continuity of their lives, the sources of meaning for their lives. And as a result, this buffers them. I'm still struggling a bit with a paradox here that, uh, and I was very interested in Tim, something you were saying about not wanting to necessarily visit, for example, locations that are, are, the, are the arena of nostalgia. And I can identify with that. I think we've all been in that situation where you go back to the old school and you stand in the playground and you think, this is way smaller than I remembered it. Um, <laughs> and that is clearly, there is something a little bit threatening about that experience. You don't like it. It does the opposite of, of the sort of the positive therapeutic thing we've been discussing. Uh, and yet also, you know, revisiting for me, looking at old, movies, old pictures, uh, has has the positive benefit. So it's very difficult for me to understand what is this quantum of positive and negative where going back, uh, you're, you're, you're trying to get the, the bright benefit, but not somehow alienate yourself by looking too closely at the reality, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I think you want to have uh, some room for interpretation, some artistic license, if you will, to paint the past uh, in a certain way. That, that is nostalgic. If you go back to a, a physical location, that is quite, that constrains your artistic license, if, if you will. It limits, you know, how much you can shape uh, what it was really like. So I think it, it makes sense. I share your experience. You know, sometimes it can be quite difficult to go back to a place where you have very fond nostalgic memories, even though life may sometimes lead you back there. And, uh, People do take take steps to sort of protect their nostalgic memories from the intrusion of the way it really was, perhaps. Or so some idealization is part of of nostalgia. Artistic license is a very interesting expression because there is a creative element, isn't it, to any narrative process? And so I wonder if your research has come up with any relationship between nostalgia and creativity. I mean, in a part of me thinks. Uh, reliance too much on the past is the enemy of creativity because we think of the arts as always thriving with innovation. Yeah, that's an interesting point because the caricature of nostalgia is that it's for old people and it's uh, ossifying, it, it freezes you in place, it's 
um, stuffy and backward looking and so on. But what we find is that that's not the case. In fact, we find the, the contrary of that. In the paradigm that we sketched and talked about before, where people either recall a nostalgic or an ordinary event from their past, those who recall a nostalgic event are more creative. They show more creativity in writing, for example. They uh, report more inspiration. They report more optimism about the future. The evidence suggests that nostalgia is future-oriented as much as it is past-oriented, that it fosters an approach orientation, approach motivation. You want to go out and do things. You want to pursue your most important goals. You want to create things. You feel inspired. You feel competent. You feel like you're capable of forming relationships, for example. You feel you're capable of navigating complex social situations and so on and so forth. So there's really quite a rich body of evidence to support that. That's very interesting because the idiomatically, the English language always uses the verb wallow with nostalgia and wallowing is the opposite function of, of what you just described. It suggests we're leaning back into something. Um, and so I find that very interesting that uh, actually there's something counterintuitive about that. Is there a, a way in which the work that you're doing and the research that you've done has, has rehabilitated nostalgia as a more positive constructs, not just in general for you, but as actually within the psychology community where this concept, as you described earlier, uh, was considered pretty negative not all that long ago. I think we did that in a couple of ways. One is we went to great pains to distinguish the construct of nostalgia from other that look similar. There are several ways of thinking about one's past. For example, rumination or counterfactual thinking or homesickness. So in our research, we try to demonstrate that nostalgia is very different from these constructs and indeed has positive consequences. Can you just unpack both of those other ones for me? Because that I think is very interesting, rumination and counterfactual thinking. Counterfactual thinking has to do with what if. What if I had closed that window and the thief had not come into my house and stolen my goods? Uh, rumination has to do with dwelling in a negative past event and being unable to escape from it. Homesickness has to do with being away from home as, say, a first-year university student and being unable to adjust to your new environment, being stuck at your paternal um, homestead. But nostalgia is not that. Nostalgia is going back into cherished memories and then coming back, going, getting out a quick infusion of positive affect, if you wish. And yet the etymology of it, algos, it, it contains this Greek root pain. So that might be because of the way it was defined in relation to these 17th century Swiss mercenaries. But nonetheless, there is something about finding the sweetness in the pain of loss, that there's something very complex going on there where it is, it's not always, it's not necessarily a happy thing that you're doing to, from which you draw the happiness. Does that make any sense at all? I'm always worried that it doesn't. Yeah, it does make sense. I think to come back to what Constantine said, there is, at the level of personality traits, there is overlap between nostalgia and these other forms of past-oriented thought. So people who tend to be more nostalgic in their day-to-day -day life are also the ones who tend to ruminate a bit more and also the ones who tend to engage in counterfactual thinking a bit more. So it sometimes can be difficult 
to distinguish them at the level of personality. And this may be part of the reason why things become a bit muddled. So we say we wallow in nostalgia. Of course, when we study it, it's important to separate them and try to identify their unique contributions, relations to psychological functioning. So in one study, uh, we measured all three of them simultaneously. We measured individual differences in nostalgia, counterfactual thinking, and rumination. And then we examined how each of those uniquely relates to memory functions, the reasons why people think about the past. And we found some quite interesting patterns. It, show, it really showed the uniqueness of nostalgia, particularly in its relation with the memory function of intimacy maintenance, trying to re retain a bond with people who may no longer be present or who may be distant, far away. Nostalgia predicted strongly this function of intimacy maintenance, whereas counterfactual thinking and rumination did not. That's fascinating because there are obviously a lot of people, I think, my limited understanding of this field is that a lot of people's unhappiness uh, is rooted in negative traumatic experiences from the past and particularly feelings of, for example, guilt and shame, uh, things that happened to them in childhood. And I suppose you can also locate in your past, even people who've had quite stressful and traumatic childhoods, there are episodes or moments where they can apply nostalgia and think, well, there was also that time we went to the seaside and I got the ice cream and I had a good time. And presumably excavating the bad experience and rummaging around and finding the good one about which you can be nostalgia could be very beneficial to people. Constantine. As you pointed out before, uh, Hofer invented the term nostalgia. It's a compound word from two Greek words, notos and algos. It means the pain you experience when you think about your home or your home country. So Hofer was actually referring to homesickness, not nostalgia. And all this negativity, for example, guilt you mentioned and a few other negative emotions have to do with homesickness, not with nostalgia. He was a confused scholar. He should have read Homer, the father of nostalgia, who 3,000 years ago discovered that feeling nostalgic about loved ones was a vitamin. It was... What kept him alive and going gave meaning to his life, the reason to get up in the morning and keep going for 10 years. So this is what Hofer should have done as opposed to improvise and confuse people for 300 years. I cannot forgive him for that. You know. <laughs> Although I suppose he, he inspired you as well to an extent. So maybe true, true. There, there's, I, there's, there's bitter sweetness in your relationship, I'm sensing. I, with I, for, I forgive him now, yeah. <laughs> now, Constantine, sorry, changing the subject slightly. I have a question for you, because we're, we're, we're slightly short on time, um, the impression I get that we are already sort of nostalgic for five, 10 years ago. I'm already a little bit nostalgic for last week in some respects. That is, there is this sense in which the, the life cycle of, of what goes into the past gets romanticized and fed back to us as nostalgia is somehow shortening or, or speeding up. It's a very, very difficult question to address empirically. Let me rephrase it somewhat. How long does it take for a memory to become nostalgic? Does it take three years, one year, six months? And uh, is it true that with life speeding up the way it is, it takes less for this memory to become nostalgic? 
Perhaps. Uh, it's, uh, we need to think about ways to investigate that, but it's a wonderful question. Perhaps you are right. But I would resort back to the idea that what this speed of life means is uncertainty, basically. And nostalgia, and maybe we revert back to nostalgia to sort out these feelings of uncertainty. That, that I know. The greater cultural uncertainty we experience, the more nostalgic we are bound to be. Tim, you wanted to come in there. Your question reminds me a little bit of a one that we've been asked uh, in the past. That is, is this a more nostalgic time? Are we more nostalgic now than we have ever been? And I think that's really interesting. It's a question that we were asked 20 years ago when we just started it. And when you go back to the 70s, Davis, uh, Fred Davis, one of the early uh, adopters of a more positive new look on nostalgia, wrote about popular culture and the current nostalgia wave. So it would seem to suggest that we're always sort of experiencing Groundhog Day. We're really nostalgic now. <laughs> no, really, now we're really nostalgic. <laughs> and uh, I think nostalgia has always been a part of sort of human psychology. Constantine mentioned Homer 3,000 years ago. You can go back maybe even further in history and they find Neolithic artifacts in Bronze Age graves. And how did they get there? You know, passed on from generation to generation. Um, so it seems that nostalgia and memory, keepsakes, those kinds of things is just really important part of how we function of our psychology. I'm finding this quite uplifting in a way, which is good because there is a bit of a tradition on this podcast that we look for uh, the positive and the optimistic outlook. And certainly when I have the tendency to take a bleak interpretation of what's happening in the world through my political lens, I'm very encouraged by this idea that actually what's happening is we're, we're processing difficult things uh, by finding the, the positive affects in the bank of our memory. Uh, and that even now, what we're doing, going through lockdown and through the coronavirus, in amongst the trauma, there will be positive things that we will, many of us will look back on fondly, and we will be nostalgic for now at some point. Uh, and that will be baked into our experience of, of, of what's happening with the pandemic. Yes, and during the pandemic, we find in our studies that nostalgia alleviates loneliness, reduces negative affect, and other people have found that it increases optimism uh, for the future. Great. I could do this all day, but I've actually got to go and write a piece. Constantine, you want to say something? Yes. There is an implication of our research for the general public, which is to spend their money on building memories as opposed to buying material goods, because this strategy is an investment into their own psychological well-being. That makes absolute sense, because you also you have hedonic adaptation, don't you? This is the thing where your happiness quotient from a new acquisition goes down. You buy a new car, you feel great about it the first few times you drive it, and within a month it feels just like your old car in terms of how much happiness you're getting from it. But yeah. you buy, spend that money on a nice trip, and you get lots of photos, then those memories keep you happy for a lot longer. Sure. Indeed. So that's yeah. that's actually happiness investment advice from that's this podcast, what it is. <laughs> as well as all the other insights. Look, um, I'm going to now say thank you so much for joining us, sharing your insight, your knowledge and your time in particular. Constantine and Tim, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Politics on the Couch. 
Thanks as ever for listening and thanks to everyone who's been sharing the podcast. Thank you again, Tim Viltrut and Constantin Selikides. And thank you, of course, to tireless producer Philip Berman. We'll be back soon with another episode. Over and out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.